Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Charles Payne. I'm Kat Timp. I'm Stuart Varney. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, December 15th, 2023. I'm Chris Foster. President Biden says House Republicans investigating him for impeachment are focused on attacking him with lies instead of focusing on the American people. There are significant numbers of people of both parties and independents who think something doesn't add up. There's something shady there. So... Republicans should tread carefully knowing, listen, there are people who are with you who think if I did some of this stuff and didn't pay my taxes, like I'd actually be in jail. We're speaking with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream. And Lisa Brady, an after school Satan club could be coming to a town near you at the intersection of free speech and church state separation. So it's not always clear where that line is, but actually in recent years, um, the Supreme Court has more and more been bending over towards allowing local and state governments to make those kind of choices. And I'm Gary Schneeberger. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. President Biden's the fifth president to be the subject of a formal impeachment inquiry in the House. Three, Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump, were impeached and then acquitted in the Senate. Richard Nixon resigned before the House ever voted, but none were ever just let off the hook. Every Republican voted in favor of the inquiry, including Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan. When a majority of the House goes on record in support of an official impeachment inquiry uh, with the power that resides solely in the House of Representatives, this impeachment power, I think that sends a message. Every Democrat voted no, including Jamie Raskin from Maryland. They have no evidence of him committing committing any offense, much less an impeachable uh, offense. Republicans say it's their duty to at least look into Biden, family finances and business deals. The House has now formally voted to move forward with this thing. And, you know, a lot of folks will say, you know, vote for an impeachment inquiry moving forward if you think it's going to hit a dead end and be like, oh, we didn't find anything. That's possible. That's a responsible way to do it. Fox News Sunday and Living the Bream podcast host Shannon Bream. Everybody views impeachments, I think, as political maneuvers in 2023. And it's certainly in 2024, you've got an election year. Republicans know they have to be careful with the optics of this as well. But they say, hey, we're just going to go where the facts lead us. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, they're going to say what's good for the goose, yada, yada, yada. Um, You didn't have the receipts when you went after Trump on on Russia and there was a fishing expedition. And if you're going to say the same thing about us, well, fair play. Sometimes you catch a fish Mm -hmm. and they the Republicans say we've got more uh, receipts than, you know, Mm -hmm. and Democrats and even some Republicans are saying, well, uh, come on with it. What's Mm -hmm. you know what if you have it, bring it now. Democrats, some of them are pouncing on. The expression, you say the quiet part out loud, Troy Nels, this mm-hmm. Texas Republican, somebody asked him, well, what do you want from an impeachment inquiry? And he said, Donald J. Trump, 2024, baby. Right. And Democrats saying, see, that's 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 mm-hmm. all this is about. Yeah. And you got to be really careful with how you frame this, because I do think the American people, I mean, when you look at polling out there and our polling, Fox polling over the last several months has when you ask people, do you think that Hunter Biden did something sketchy with his business? Do you think is dad knew anything about it. I mean, there are significant numbers of people in both parties and independents who think 
something doesn't add up. There's something shady there. So Republicans should tread carefully knowing, listen, there are people who are with you who think if I did some of this stuff and didn't pay my taxes, like I'd actually be in jail. There are things here that haven't been fully explained or the White House story has shifted. And maybe it is all above board. Maybe there's nothing illegal there at all. But when the story keeps changing, it gives people a lot of skepticism. Yeah, it may end up just being, okay. it's kind of gross, but it's not illegal, illegal. Right. Um, Now, Hunter Biden came out. Um, was supposed to do this behind the you know behind closed doors deposition. He showed up. Everybody, everybody thought, okay, great, he is, here he is. He gave the statement, got his car. That was that. Goodbye. Um, yeah, see ya. Um, he says he'll only do it in public. Um, that's he was way more aggressive than I mm-hmm. can ever remember hear him mm-hmm. being. He, he's occasionally dropped some statements in here and there, sometimes through his lawyers, but he was very forceful. Mm-hmm. He was. And I mean, as soon as he starts the statement, he starts out with MAGA Republicans. You know where this is going. And clearly, Abby Lowell, long seasoned, respected attorney in Washington, obviously helps him craft this. But my mind as a lawyer is listening to the specific language that he's using, saying my my father wasn't financially involved in this business. We talk about the evolution of the White House saying um, he never talked to his son about business. He was never in business with his son. Now he's not financially involved in it. So, um, (laughs) you know, he opens some doors by Coming out and saying what he said publicly, he gives those House committees led by the GOP um, more ammunition in some ways. And he's sort of daring them not to hold him in contempt to do it by showing up on the Senate side, giving his little speech, you know, leaving without ever showing up on the House side. I don't know that Comer and Jordan feel like they have any other option but to hold him in contempt. Right. He could have gone in there and just said, I don't recall, I plead the fifth mm-hmm. or whatever you mm-hmm. say in that situation. I don't know if pleading the fifth is appropriate. It, yeah, it, you can okay. at a congressional depot. And then the Republicans are just going to say, look, that's proof that he's lying right. because he's not talking. Um, and Biden says, well, if I did talk, then they're just going to leak and spin whatever they want from behind closed doors. I want to do this publicly. Mm-hmm. Republicans are saying, look, if we start with this publicly, it's just going to be political theater because there's right. not actual real questioning from attorneys with follow ups. You can spend 20, 30 minutes mm-hmm. and not just the five minutes of people grandstanding. I think we all know uh, that's how this works. I mean, the first thing you learn in law school is don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. That's why by the time you see witnesses on the witness stand or in a big public trial, they've been deposed. Documents have been collected. Attorneys basically know what they're going to say. And that's how these congressional investigations generally work, too. You do have these closed door conversations and depots. Democrats do it when they're running it. Republicans do it when they're running it. It's pretty standard procedure to do that. But I think that Hunter and his team are going to assume a lot of people don't know that. And so he's going to go out and make his big public splash. But he's not said anything under oath in that public presser. So um, he kind of gets the best of both worlds, although it may end up with the not so best of the both worlds if he's, you know, in contempt. And what happens? So Congress can vote to hold him in contempt, Mm -hmm. but then there's going to be. Uh, Do you really expect the Justice Department is going to track him down and put handcuffs on him? That's the tricky part, because everybody looks at Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro. Um, Steve, you know, is appealing a jail sentence. Navarro is going to get sentenced in January, probably going to get a jail sentence. So how does DOJ support those cases and then, uh, you know, ignore what happened with Hunter? Remember, Eric Holder was held in contempt, too. Remember that. Mm -hmm. So this former attorney general. Right. And so the the D.C. DOJ folks um, have at times, um, picked and chosen what they wanted to do. But I think the Bannon and Navarro cases are really a problem for them when it comes to Hunter. Yeah. Um, Talk about the Supreme Court for a minute. They have essentially agreed to quickly decide if they will quickly decide. (laughs) I love how you put um, that. (laughs) um, Whether uh, former President Trump is protected by presidential immunity 
in this federal election interference case. Mm-hmm. Um, so now that case is on hold. Judge mm-hmm. Chutkin said, well, look, this is out of my hands until the people above me decide what they're going to do. It was, in my mind, very clever of the special counsel here to to try to leapfrog the appeals mm-hmm. court and, and try to keep this March trial date um, on track. Right. Now we'll see. We will. And I was, to be honest with you, surprised how quickly the Supreme Court responded to his filing. Like same day said, "Okay, we're going to take this seriously. Trump team, you have until Wednesday, the 20th to answer this. And again, as you describe it, it's not to decide the merits of the case, but it's to decide whether they will take the case and skip that appellate step. So it's whether it gets fast tracked. Trump team doesn't want that. They want these trials to be dragged out, try to get them past November of 24 if they can. Um, but yeah, Jack Smith knows there's a lot of cleanup he's got to do in order to actually start that trial in March. Um, so we'll see. But I I said to myself, there goes my Christmas break <laughs> because the Supreme Court is probably going to make a decision around Christmas time. Uh, but we'll see what they if they decide to decide to hear the case. Right. Is that a thing? Just leapfrogging over appellate courts? Pretty rare. Yeah. It's pretty rare because they normally will like to let something percolate in the lower courts, see where it goes. This is obviously a unique case. Um, yeah. And that's part of the Trump team's argument is it's novel, it's first impression, let it play out through the normal channels to let it be fully vetted legally. Um, but the Supreme Court is also aware that there's a there's an election next year. Yeah. They like to be as apolitical as possible. They don't ever, ever want to make a decision that is tied to politics or looks like it's tied to politics. Um, but they are aware that next year is yeah. what it is. I mean, not making a decision could be looked at as a political exactly. decision. So mm-hmm. um, speaking of the Supreme Court, a couple of cases they've agreed to hear. One, uh, well, let's start since we're kind of talking about um, former President Trump anyway. Uh, these January 6th cases. Mm-hmm. Um, it hinges on um, whether obstructing an official proceeding mm-hmm. is an appropriate charge. That's one of the things that Trump mm-hmm. is, is charged with in the other special counsel case. Um, it's a little bit um, weedy, it seems, I, I, mm-hmm. ge- I guess, but it could jeopardize a bunch of these cases. It could because these are from a couple of January 6th defendants and they challenged this obstruction, this use of this federal obstruction statute. And they had success in the trial court, but they lost on appeal. So now the Supreme Court says we'll take it up. But it does uh, potentially impact the Trump case in that these are charges that Jack Smith, special counsel, brought against Trump. So uh, obviously they would love to see that part of the case thrown out. But again, the timing is key because if the Supreme Court hears this case, March or April, decision by June, um, you know, Jack Smith's hoping his trial starts in March and is way ahead of a decision from the Supreme Court on that. The official proceeding in this case is obviously the certification of um, Joe Biden's electoral college victory. Um, I guess the the statute seems... Well, maybe that doesn't cover it. Maybe there has to be documents involved or whatever. Mm-hmm. Does just putting yourself physically in a position to delay something constitute mm-hmm. obstructing an official proceeding? Yeah, I, and I'm fascinated to see what the justices will do with that. Again, yeah. if the Trump trial on those charges is already going, may not help him, but you know he's going to and his team will fight like tooth and nail to say like, hey, the Supreme Court's considering this question, so don't charge me or you can't convict me on these charges. Yeah. Um, the Supreme Court's other case, um, a big one, which... You say they want to try to be apolitical. They may be inserting themselves into the presidential election in another way um, with this abortion case, another abortion case about this abortion bill, Mifepristone. Um, it's the most common way to, mm-hmm. to, to do abortions now. Um, it's They're not taking up the legality of it. They've mm-hmm. they've agreed with lower courts that, OK, yeah, the pill's legal. Mm-hmm. It's about the, it's about these restrictions right. and rolling them, rolling the more permissive uh, rules mm-hmm. back. Yeah, so they're not going to get to original FDA approval of the drug. Um, they're not taking that up, which was, you know, the plaintiffs in this case wanted that addressed too, but they're like, no, we're not going to go there. But we are going to look at whether this can be done through telemedicine, through the mail. 
those are changes. It used to be that you had to go see the doctor. There were follow-up visits. There can be complications. I mean, that's a legit thing. But um, COVID changed a lot of these things, too, that you can get them through the mail. Also, that you can use them later into a pregnancy. Like 10 so, weeks instead of 7, I think. Right. So the court will look at whether those expansions of the use of the pill were done procedurally correctly or not. This is another case where... Things get murky when federal law and state law differs. Like with marijuana, for mm-hmm. example, lots of states have uh, have legal marijuana. What about banking? Are, mm-hmm. are people in that business at risk of having their money seized because it's federally illegal? Same mm-hmm. thing here. Um, if you're using the federal mail to mail something to a place that can't be legally used, right. you're kind of crossing the streams. Yeah, very much so, because, gosh, you know, since Dobbs and when Roe went down, um, there's a patchwork of states that allow all kinds of things or restrict all kinds of things. And so this pill has been something that um, pro-choice advocates have said it's essential. It means that no matter where you live, you would still have an option when it comes to abortion if we can come through the mail. Um, So, gosh, you're right. The Supreme Court is right in the middle of another heated issue. Probably, again, this case is heard in the spring. We have a decision in June, which is in the middle of a presidential election. Yeah. And there are Republicans who might say, well, I I agree that the pill should be restricted. But on the other hand, this is going to this is going to politically p- it's p- be potentially drive Democrat remind Democrats. Oh, mm-hmm. I guess I really should vote. Right. And there are so many states, as you know, in Florida, they think they're getting close to getting an abortion measure on the ballot next fall because they know Democrats has been really good for them. Mm-hmm. Florida was not good for them uh, in 22. So um, they're really hoping many of these states to get abortion measures on. But even when abortion's not on the ballot, when a case like this is out there, um, I live in Virginia. They just had massive elections there. And even though there was not a single abortion measure on the ballot, every ad that I saw all day long was about abortion. So they know. And if this is, you know, in the headlines in June, probably not good for Republicans. Uh, What's up with Christmas? Stress, relaxation. Are you ready? I am. But, you know, I'm going to be on tenterhooks, standing by for SCOTUS and what they do (laughs) with these Trump cases over the holidays. Um, But I do love what I do and um, try to take a little break in there for New Year's. What about you? Uh, I think I'm going to take off the week in between, which I rarely do. I like that. Shannon Bream, uh, host of Fox News Sunday and the Live in the Bream podcast. Oops. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. 
I'm Emily Campagno, host of the Fox True Crime Podcast. This week, I spoke to Clay Chabot, a man who spent over 20 years in prison, wrongfully convicted of a murder and rape he did not commit. Clay's imprisonment stemmed from the false testimony of his brother-in-law, who was the one that actually committed the crimes. Clay joins me to discuss what justice means to him all these years later. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and foxnewspodcast.com. This is Gary Schneeberger with your Fox News commentary coming up. The new year will bring a new club to an elementary school in Tennessee, the After School Satan Club. A first for the state, but not for the country. They're in several states already. It's a program launched by the Satanic Temple at schools where other religious clubs are already allowed to operate on campus. Though the Temple's club says they're not aiming to convert students to any religious ideology. In fact, they view Satan as a literary figure and part of a metaphorical rejection of tyranny. We believe in individual liberty and personal autonomy. We believe in real religious liberty. And we believe in free expression. Members have been known to rip up Bibles, but Satanic Temple founder Lucian Greaves recently told Fox News Tonight. We're not advocating for cruelty and inhumanity and destruction and those types of things. He says they do think people should be shaken from superstitious notions. Greaves wouldn't talk about the after-school program because of litigation. The American Civil Liberties Union announced a settlement last month between the Satanic Temple and a Pennsylvania school district accused of discrimination for not allowing the club. A spokesperson for After School Satan Club tells Fox News Digital they only go where they're invited, and a parent requested the one in Tennessee, scheduled to begin next month at Chimney Rock Elementary Library in Memphis. School district officials say the Satanic Temple has the same legal rights to use their facilities after hours as any other nonprofit organization. I mean, there have been groups trying to get satanic images and satanic statues up in all kinds of different places over the years. Hans von Spakovsky, senior legal fellow for the Heritage Foundation, is also a former Justice Department attorney. Trying to get it into the schools uh, is probably a relatively new phenomenon, particularly the idea of forming satanic clubs. Uh, with within uh, high schools and middle schools and even apparently some elementary schools. How much does intent matter in terms of wanting to or having to perhaps um, allow something like this? And I ask that partly because the Satanic Temple says this isn't a religious thing, that their activities emphasize a scientific, a rationalist, non-superstitious worldview. Well, that's not really the issue so much as whether or not it's an officially sanctioned activity or a private activity. And what I mean by that is, look, the easiest way for people to understand this is that, look, the Supreme Court has basically said the First Amendment doesn't apply to the government. Okay, when the government engages in speech, uh, and I'll give you an example, Uh, you know, when the government put out that theme, just say no to illegal drugs, the government wasn't required to allow private groups to use government facilities with an opposite message. so if, if it, so if the government's doing it, they, they can choose, you know, what to say, where to say it, and when to say it. The difference is if a school, they're not sponsoring it, but they're simply making their facilities available. 
to private groups. That's when the First Amendment comes in. So if they're going to rent out rooms, for example, at a school facilities, then they can't be choosing which groups they're going to allow to speak there. So if they're simply renting out facilities to a satanic group, they can't stop that from happening. If the satanic group, however, is saying, you have to make us part of your curriculum, that they can't force the school to do. Hmm. Where is the either the dividing line or the overlap um, when it comes to free speech versus a potential violation of the church-state separation? How do you know it's one type of issue or the other? Yeah, that has often been very confusing, and and the line between that has kind of gone back and forth when the Supreme Court has looked at it. But what they've done in recent years is they have often looked at tradition in history. A good example of this is a, is a case back in 2009. It was called Pleasant Grove City versus uh, Samoom. It was a Utah case. And the lawsuit was over the fact that in a public park in Pleasant Grove, uh, they had different kinds of monuments there, including one dedicated to the, to the 10th commandment. And a group sued saying, well, the government can't do this. This is establishing a religion. And what the Supreme Court said was, no, you can do this. And by the way, this is a nine to zero decision, right? This was the, the all the conservative and liberal justices agreeing. And they said, look, the city was able to put that in for reasons of history, not necessarily religion, because the Ten Commandments had a lot of influence on the the laws that were established uh, in Utah, and so they said it was okay. So it's not always clear where that line is, but actually in recent years, um, the Supreme Court has more and more been bending over towards allowing local and state governments to make those kind of choices. Well, in that Ten Commandments case is very reminiscent of a recent case involving a giant cross allowed on Correct. public land, right? That 2019 right. case. And didn't they kind of do the same thing where they landed on the side, or at least a majority did, that one wasn't unanimous, right? But they landed on the side of, well, this is really historic more than it is yes. religious, even though, I mean, you can't argue against the cross. It is The cross is a religious symbol. No, that's exactly right. And that was another very important case in this area that illustrates, as you just said, that they really look at tradition and history as to whether it's okay for a government to put up a a religious symbol. It's definitely nuanced, depending on the case, right? I mean, Justice right. Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued at the time in that cross case that allowing it to remain on a public highway elevates Christianity over other faiths and religion over non-religion. But these Supreme Court decisions do then have influence around the country, right? How much is it a legal issue and how much is it a legislative issue when you have, you know, the mixing of government buildings and religious displays or practices? Is it more legal or is it more legislative in terms of the state being in charge? That's a difficult question, although uh, we should mention the fact that the Supreme Court has also been extremely lenient and permissive over what legislative bodies are able to do. 
And, you know, the example of that is that um, there have been cases in the past, uh, for example, that have tried to say that it's somehow a violation of the First Amendment for state legislatures to open their sessions with prayers and benedictions. And the Supreme Court has very much stayed away from interfering in in that. Um, how far they, they will go, the Supreme Court, in restricting what state legislatures do, again, just kind of depend on the circumstances. And, and the, the key dividing line, again, the easiest way for folks to understand this is official government speech versus private speech using government facilities. And the rules there are are very different. Mm -hmm. The Satanic Temple of Iowa has uh, put up a holiday display in the state house um, that did spark a free speech debate. One state representative described the legislature's current approach, though, as all or nothing. So, for instance, if they're allowing a nativity scene, then this is allowed as well. I mean, is that... Is that an argument that it can apply across all states? Does this really vary a lot state by state? No, this is, they're, they're basically going about the, uh, by the rules set out by the Supreme Court. And, you know, the key to that is what you just said, that they're allowing private displays. Now, if they switch that, if they change things just to not allow private displays, but it was the legislature putting in a monument or display or a statue, well, then they would have very much control over what is put up. Going back to the case I was talking about, Pleasant Grove City, where, you know, the city was allowed to keep up a Ten Commandments monument. But again, the difference is whether the legislature is officially acting or simply allowing legislative space to be used by private groups. When they're doing that, then they can't really say, well, some groups are okay to put up their displays and others aren't, because that's where the First Amendment applies with full force. Even if, you know, taxpayers come along and try to argue, well, but this is kind of the people's house in some way. So don't we don't we have a say in that? Can't we object? Well, they can they can try that argument. And like I said, the the, the problem in this area is that there's not a distinct line that's been drawn here by the court. You know, they've kind of wavered a bit back and forth on how far state governments can go, and that would include state legislatures, when it comes to these kind of religious displays. And history and tradition, again, has a lot to do with what the state legislatures can do. And I hate to say this, but there's simply no hard and fast rule on this. And if you look at the history of the Supreme Court and examine these kind of cases, anyone coming away from reading that uh, probably is going to end up a little bit confused on uh, what is allowed and, and how far state governments can, can go or local governments can go in this area. Would you expect these kinds of questions to keep coming back before the U.S. Supreme Court for these types of things to be challenged over time. Is there any sort of a, a limit to that at the court? I mean, I guess it's always up to the current justices, right, which, which cases they take and what they don't. No, I do expect these cases to keep, to keep coming before the court, although in, in recent years, they've kind of, um, they've been kind of solidifying their views on, on this. Um, 
For a long time, they were using a test that was called the Lemon Test to look at religious activity by state and local governments. Uh, in recent years, they kind of rejected that and came up with uh, new ways of looking at this, uh, trying to be, I think, a little bit more um, akin to and closer to the way they believe the Constitution actually should be interpreted in that. And that's what they did, for example, in the Cross case uh, that you were mentioning, you know, at the beginning of our discussion. But while they've clarified this somewhat, there are still areas of this that are murky, and that's it's those murky cases that are going to end up coming up before the court again. Hans von Spakovsky, Senior Legal Fellow for the Heritage Foundation. Thank you very much for your time. Sure. Thanks for having me. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. Nearly 100 children recently took a special flight to the North Pole, courtesy of a little holiday magic. The children, who are all battling life-threatening illnesses, are patients at Children's Hospice International in Alexandria, Virginia. Earlier this month, on a Saturday morning, they and their families took part in a fantasy flight, making their way to a special decorated gate at Dulles International Airport in Washington, D.C. They wrote letters to Santa Claus and got their faces painted before boarding a very special United Airlines Boeing 777, all decked out in tinsel and complete with snacks for their trip. Flight attendants wearing festive reindeer headbands, red ribbons, or Christmas-themed suits greeted the kids with a cheery welcome aboard. And some of the kids even got a chance to see the plane's cockpit. There were cheers as the plane took off, and after about 30 minutes in the air, it landed, and visitors were welcomed to the North Pole. Santa and Mrs. Claus were at the gate to greet and take photos with the kids, who did arts and crafts and were entertained by local musicians, therapy dogs, and characters like Woody from Toy Story. They all got a gift to take home, and so did their parents, in a different way. Some of them telling local news outlets just how much it meant to have those moments with their children. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. I'm Dana Perino. This week on Perino on Politics, candidates travel across the country. They're trying to make connections with early state voters. They remain in the shadow of the current frontrunner, former President Trump, who has adopted somewhat of a courtroom campaign strategy. And it's working. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and foxnewspodcast.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Gary Schneeberger. What's on your mind? It's one of the most heated debates of the Yuletide season. No, not real trees or artificial ones. Not whether to serve ham or turkey for dinner. Not if it's best to exchange presents on the night of December 24th or the morning of December 25th. The issue that's truly vexed us as a nation since 1988 is this. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie or not? As the co-author of the films of Bruce Willis, the first ever movie-by-movie study of the Die Hard star's career, I think the answer is clear. Yippee-ki-yes, moviegoers. Consider the story. It takes place on Christmas Eve during a big holiday office party. It involves family traveling thousands of miles to celebrate together. A key character is named Holly. One of the most memorable scenes features a guy in a Santa hat. And the picture concludes with one of the most beloved songs of the season. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. 
2% of Americans polled a few years back by the Associated Press said Die Hard was their favorite Christmas movie, just a single percentage point behind A Christmas Carol and Miracle on 34th Street. And the film's director, John McTiernan, told the media in 2020 that we hadn't intended it to be a Christmas movie, but the joy that came from it is what turned it into a Christmas movie. Okay, let's get serious for a minute. Joy, as in the tidings of comfort and variety, we are, all cute observations aside, talking about a movie in which a group of Natalie clad terrorists takes a Los Angeles high rise hostage to steal $640 million in negotiable bearer bonds. The greatest splash of red comes not courtesy of wrapped presents, but the bloody wrapped feet of John McClane, Willis's cop character, after he runs for his life through shattered glass as the bad guys fire automatic weapons at him. That doesn't sound very Christmassy, does it? Maybe not. But Die Hard is more than the sum of its most violent, pulse-pounding parts. It is, at its heart, a story of family reconciliation, something we all long for at the holidays if there are tears in our relational fabric. John and Holly McLean, separated by professional ambitions and personal resentments at the film's start, are reunited as the credits roll. McLean's most resonant climactic triumph is not that he drops Hans Gruber off the 30th floor of Nakatomi Plaza. It's that he is back in the arms of his wife and moving back into the home of their children. He sets his own self-interest aside to sacrificially and, yes, heroically, love his family. You might even say Christmas is saved by the reunion of the McLeans at the end of Die Hard, just as it is saved by Scrooge's change of heart in A Christmas Carol, by the residents of Bedford Falls bailing George Bailey out of his jam and It's a Wonderful Life, or by Rudolph with his nose so bright guiding Santa's sleigh through the heavy fog in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. In the end, what dies hardest in Die Hard, so hard that it doesn't die at all but springs vividly to life, is the spirit of love that marks the season we call the most wonderful time of the year. Yippee-ki-yay, indeed. I'm Gary Schneeberger co-author of The Films of Bruce Willis, available now. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.